Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Bukhar Hambal, CEO and founder of Security Pal, a security reviews platform that's raised $21 million in funding. Bukhar, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brad. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. I'm looking forward to it as well. Let's kick things off with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So for the past three and a half years, I've been serving as the uh, founder and CEO of uh, Security Pal. You know, before that, I was a co-founder of an HR tech company called Teamable. That's actually where I discovered the problem around security reviews. I also do some angel investing on the side, and I'm deeply passionate about ensuring everybody benefits from technology. Were you happy with the outcome of that HR company you built? <laughs> I think it always certainly could have been better, but I think the outcome in hindsight of all the lessons that I learned were priceless. So from that standpoint, I'm actually quite thrilled. After that exit, did you always know that you were going to go back and do another tech company or did part of you consider just being an investor or becoming a VC or just doing something else? Yeah, I mean, I actually like wanted to leave tech, I thought. I felt a bit disillusioned. Like, I think, you know, Silicon Valley can be a bit of a tough place. You know, building a startup, building an early stage company, it's not easy. There's so many things that can go wrong. You're sort of like operating in an environment when you're trying to like get any startup off the ground you're operating in an environment where gravity is just so much greater, right? Like everything's trying to pull you down. And so for several months, maybe even six months there, I I really thought, you know, I was going to like leave tech. But, you know, something kept me around, perhaps good mentorship, my gut, this belief that I had in this place. I feel very fortunate for uh, just being surrounded by the right set of people and um, continuing to be curious. Which mentor there would you say had the the greatest impact on you or maybe even outside of mentors, just what founders really inspire you? Yeah, I would say I've had the good fortune of really like getting to know, you know, a handful of really amazing founders, CEOs and leaders. The folks that I really look up to are there's a founder of this company called Atrium. It's a data driven sales management solution. His name is Pete Kazanji. And he was actually like the first person that hired me in tech way back in the day at his like first company, Talent Ben, which exited to Monster. So I worked there briefly. So he was a great mentor to just like bounce ideas off of and eventually helped me sort of ideate, became our, a design partner and really our first customer when uh, Security Pal started. And then there's another founder that I really admire and probably the founder that I sort of look up to, up to the most in my network. And that's Iman Abuzaid. She's the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of this company called Incredible Health. They're a marketplace, talent marketplace for hospitals and health groups. And they're a tremendously successful company, Unicorn. And she's just like the most incredible, inspirational founder. That's awesome. I think we're, we're talking with her at one point about getting her on the show. That uh, brought it back on my radar, so I'll have to follow up with her again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'd be great for your audience to hear from somebody like her. Nice. That's awesome. What about books? The way we like to frame this, this comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a, a quick book is a book that like rocks into your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? 
Yeah, I've had several books that have had a big influence on me, certainly on my journey of trying to build Security Pal. One such book is actually this book called When Breath Becomes Air. It's by um, Paul Kalanithi. I don't want to give too much away, but it's really like a memoir written by this doctor who's suffering from an illness. And it's a really inspirational story. Uh, it came out back in 2016. It was a book I think I read, I think two years after it came out. It was pretty powerful. I also reference Shoe Dog as another book that had um, a really good influence on me. Just listening to Phil Knight's story about you know, how he ended up founding Nike and that journey took him about 10 years to really get the company started. So that was like really inspirational for me because there's so many sort of like stories that you hear of folks catching lightning in a bottle with the entrepreneurship journey can be quite long and you have to find a way to stick through it. So that was a really inspirational story for me. So those are two books that come to mind right now. You have to give the warning for uh, when breath becomes air that you're going to cry. It's a, it's a pretty... Uh... It's a sad book. It's very inspiring. And it, I think when I read it a few years ago, I, I definitely walked away with a lot of valuable insights, but it's definitely a, a hard read if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I would say certainly not an easy book for everybody, but I think like almost everybody that I've talked to who's read that book really comes away from it just really inspired and certainly looks at life differently. I also remember reading this book, The War of Art, which was also like pretty inspiring. I think it was a book that came out in like 2012. It was Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. So it's a pretty interesting book as well. There's like a whole host of books that I would say are sort of like the source code that built my foundational like motivation and pointed like the vector of like what I wanted to be in like the right direction. So if, you know, people that want to reach out to me, like they can always reach out to me via email, and I'm happy to like share like some of those other books as well. That's awesome. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the company and everything that you're doing there. So how we like to begin this part of the interview is really focusing on the problem. So at a very, very high level, what problem does SecurityPal solve? Yeah, at a very high level, the problem that SecurityPal solves is this challenge in the commercial transaction, right? When one company is trying to sell its product to another company, the sale is usually blocked or slowed down by this thing known as like a security review or a security questionnaire. It's a pesky document and pesky sort of process where you have to present a lot of information about your security postures, internal controls, certifications you have, and you have to present that information to you know individuals, either security leaders, GRC leaders, and other folks at whichever company is trying to buy your product. And you have to make sure that you can provide an adequate level of assurance before they approve that in procurement. And, you know, you can book the win and deploy your product. So it's a particularly like challenging problem because it doesn't lend itself super well to being solved by AI. Even with a lot of the advances we've made, that's actually still quite challenging to solve this problem. But yeah, it's that sort of point in the commercial transaction where you're really close to closing a deal well, you got to go through these like security reviews and security checks and they can drag out the sales cycle for weeks and months. And, you know, it can cause a lot of headaches for organizations that are looking to partner with each other. The buyer wants to buy the product, the seller wants to sell the product, but you got to go through this necessary paperwork. And that's the problem we ultimately end up solving. 
And that's actually how we started at the company, solving that problem. Since then, we've launched other products as well. But I would say that was our main wedge into the market and what allowed us to be in the position we're in today. You mentioned you uncovered this problem at your previous company. Can you talk to uh, how you uncovered it? Yeah, I mean, I remember it. It was like a Thursday evening, afternoon. Um, I got a ping from somebody on my team that says, hey, like, it was like the end of the quarter and the end of the month, end of the quarter. It was like a significant time period for the business. And I got hit with this like 200 question security questionnaire that we needed to fill out. Actually, it wasn't 200 questions. It was actually 200 pages. So like it was a massive document. It was in a docx format and we needed to provide a lot of evidence about our controls, about security controls we didn't have, a lot of like information that we just couldn't produce as a very early stage company. And unless we filled this out, we would not be able to get the deal done, right? And so that was like my first real like visceral experience with this problem. And, you know, I realized, wow, like there's got to be a better way of solving it. And I remember like Googling and searching, like, how do you solve for this? You know, DDQs, security questionnaires, RFPs, like how do you actually like solve for this problem? And the existing solutions were just, you know, they were tools that were like really trying to like help me solve the problem myself, but ultimately ended up creating more work. And that's when I got like really frustrated and really started like like digging in a little bit deeper. It took some time from like me running into the problem to actually like building Security Pal and going full time. But that was when I actually like discovered the problem. And I realized like post 2018, like May 2018, we started seeing this a lot more. And your listeners might be wondering, well, <laughs> that's a pretty specific date. But the reason is that was when GDPR had that big European regulation, the General Data Protection Regulation. And post GDPR, there was just a lot more, I would say, emphasis on organizations to understand what's happening with their data and PII, you know, personally identifiable information, other things. And so I started noticing it a lot more after post GDPR and a lot greater and heightened sensitivity from purchasers and buyers of software with regards to like what they're buying and who the vendors are. And that was really, I would say, the founding moments and ingredients and founding truths that sort of like eventually led to Security Pound. Are you seeing security questionnaires get longer and longer? Are they getting shorter? What's happening to security questionnaires these days? I would generally say like security reviews are getting more complicated. And so a security questionnaire is just one type of security review. And security reviews can show up in the format of a questionnaire. They can show up in the format of an interview with somebody on your team that the security leader on the buying org wants to talk to. They can show up in the form of like wanting a bunch of evidence, right? Screenshots, documents, policies. And so I would say like complexity of this sort of step in the commercial transaction has only increased. You know, the analogy I like to use and um, is, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of topography at that last mile of a deal. It used to be the case that before you could just sort of, you know, get the verbal commit and, and move to close, maybe some red lines here and there. But now closing enterprise deals, securing revenue, there's just a tremendous amount of topography to navigate. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm actually originally from Nepal. I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal. And we know a thing or two about topography. I know a thing or two about topography, having been from the country of the Himalayas and Mount Everest. And so what we really say is we're kind of helping you navigate as a product through that complexity and topography at the last mile of a deal, such that, you know, none of your revenues gets slowed down and, and you can also like save a lot of headaches in the overall process. But I would say the short answer is like, it's certainly getting more complex. Yeah. 
When it comes to your market category, how do you think about the category? Just looking at your website, it looks like customer assurance. Is that the category or what is the actual category? Yeah, our thesis here is customer assurance is like one of the most critical steps in securing revenue and increasing lifetime value, right? LTV. And what is customer assurance? Well, customer assurance is not just about the security review and the security review in and of itself is not just about security, actually. Sometimes the security review entails a lot of questions about legal privacy. Sometimes it entails a lot of questions about the financial health of the company. Sometimes it even involves a lot of questions about like the makeup of your team and where you're located, right? And so there's this critical step that is emerging in the overall commercial transaction, right? Which is really this step around customer assurance. The term that many other companies like to use is trust and compliance. Our thesis is trust on the internet is dying, right? Especially as it relates to, you know, B2B internet. We're almost going back to the very early days of the internet. When the internet first came out, people were afraid of putting their names online, you know, even their images. It was all screen names and whatnot, right? We had a lot of sort of concerns about data and privacy on the internet before. And then we had this entire period, right, where we put everything on the internet. And then now we're back to this era where putting all this data on the internet, we kind of got burned. There are all these hacks and leaks and our data being everywhere and, and breaches happening all the time. And somebody's on the hook for that. There's liability as it relates to that, right? Companies are on the hook for that. Insurance companies are on the hook for that. And so really we're back to this days, we're back to the early days of the internet where, especially in the B2B world, where trust, which can seem very binary, has turned into something much more continuous, right? Trust is a much more discrete function, I would say, like to bring some math into this. And assurance is a much more continuous thing, right? Assurance is about providing consistent and continuous assurance to your customers from even before that they sign on, right? From the first time they really hear about you and your brand and your company, to, you know, the last day they're with you, right? And the other reason why customer assurance is the fundamental category here is, you know, what we're seeing is security reviews don't just show up now at the point of the commercial transaction. They're actually showing up throughout the life cycle, right? Throughout the life cycle of a two companies engaging with each other. Because you might imagine like a vendor gets breached, right? If a vendor gets breached, well, your customers are going to want to know if you're using that vendor or not, right? That company or not. And that's a point at which you need to deliver more customer assurance. Also, we're seeing another trend towards overall consolidation and more reliance on a fewer set of tools and products. Well, that's an opportunity for increased lifetime value, LTV, for every company that's a multi-product company or aspires to be a multi-product company, right? We're a multi-product company. And if you deliver great assurance, you can actually capture that additional lifetime value much faster. So... It's a very interesting time that we're living in. And I would say customer assurance is a fundamental pillar of growth, much like what Qualtrics and Medallia have done in the customer experience space, right? really rebranding support as customer experience, which is much higher value. 
This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And it sounds like this is an intentional strategy then, but do you have a category strategy? I would say this is a very long-term strategy for us of defining and outlining this customer assurance category. And, you know, there's nobody else that's really working on establishing this category. We believe we have the customer base. We have some of the most incredible brands, Fortune 500 brands behind us who believe in this category. We have the capital, the backing from the investors, and it's a complete green field for us. I mean, there is nobody that's actually thinking about this from a continuous customer assurance standpoint rather than discrete points of trust. I think there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to automate trust. But if you think about it, automating trust is a kind of like an oxymoron, right? Especially as it relates to the enterprises. Assurance is actually how you're going to win these customers over the long run. What are you doing to really bring this category into market and, and get buyers to say, yep, that's what I need. That's what I, I want one of those. Because that's always one of the challenges that I've seen founders face when it comes to creating a category is you're trying to educate the market at the same time that you're trying to sell them a product. So what are you doing to really drive that demand for this category? I would say it's less. I think educating is correct. To some extent, you have to educate the market. But the market already understands that this is a problem. When we talk to leaders, when we talk to CISOs, when we talk to GRC leaders, when we talk to revenue leaders, right, within teams, they feel this pain. It's just that they haven't been able to put a word on it, right? What do you call it at the end of the day? It's just a tremendous amount of paperwork and you got to do, you got to fill it out. You got to provide the evidence. You got to get on calls. You have to do a lot of this coordination. And then once the customer approves, right, once the prospect approves of all this information, once they feel sufficiently assured, then they move forward. So in many ways, like, I think the market has been waiting for somebody to put a brand on this, to actually like put a name to it. And whenever we go in front of leaders, I just went in front of the leader of a incredibly successful company, right? A $30 billion company, American software company in the databases space. And when I talked to her about this problem, she got it right away. She was like, yep, like this is exactly correct. So it's certainly about education, but it's about really demonstrating to the market, to our ICP, our ideal customer profile, and the market we're trying to serve that we understand this problem. We've thought through this problem. We felt this problem, in fact, and we have figured out a solution for it and ensuring that what we're talking about is actually resonating. And what we're finding with the customers that we're speaking with is it is indeed resonating. That's the feedback that we receive. What are you doing to rise above all the noise that's out there? Because I, I do think that from time to time on TechCrunch, I read about a company in this space raising funding on, on LinkedIn. I see some ads sometimes. So it seems like there is some buzz in this space and there's a lot of noise in this space. What have you done to rise above all that noise? Because when I look through your website and see all those logos that every founder would dream of having on their website, I have to think, wow, there must be something special that you're doing or you've got something right here. So what have you gotten right? <laughs> 
you know, we're very lucky to have an incredible team and we're deeply motivated by this problem. You know, in many ways, I would say, like, what are our moats? Our moats are that we believe in solving this problem more than anybody else. I can confidently say that. And we're not just doing this because, you know, it was uh, incubated in a VC fund or we're trying to, like, copycat somebody or anything like that, right? And there's a lot of other players out there that are doing that. We're on this massive 30 to 40 year mission. Right. And we're building our team in just the most incredibly thoughtful way. We have a incredible team spread out across the US. We have hundreds of full-time employee security analysts in our security operations command center in Kathmandu, Nepal, which was inaugurated by the sitting US ambassador to Nepal. He actually did the ribbon cutting. We're building this company in a very different way. We're much more thoughtful and intentional about the type of growth that we need. We're not trying to go after, you know, trickery and growth hacks. We're trying to be highly empathetic to our customer base. That lends itself to a different type of, I would say, growth curve than maybe what other companies are looking for or aiming at. But I'm a student of finance. I'm a big fan of Benjamin Graham. And I love his quote that, you know, in the short run, the market's are a voting machine, and in the long run, they're a weighing machine. And I want to build over the next 30 to 40 years, right? We at SecurityPal want to build something in the next 30 to 40 years that weighs a substantial amount. And we found this opportunity to not only create a very compelling category that's resonating with Fortune 100 security leaders, GRC leaders, and revenue leaders, but one that not just that it's resonating with them, but they're paying for it and they're committing to multi-year deals. And we're really excited about what we're doing here. And I'm really glad to say that we don't need to raise another round of funding to be able to accomplish what we need to accomplish. We have full control over the company and we know where we're going and we're going to get there. No board's going to take over the company like uh, OpenAI? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I don't think we're going to have that sort of situation here, no matter how interesting (laughs) it it is. Yeah. Pretty crazy time in tech, right? This past weekend, it's been a, feels like we're living in an episode of succession. I would say, listen, like I have nothing but respect for anybody that's in the arena, right? And I know that's used to death and cliched. So uh, there's a lot of folks that have worked so hard to build what OpenAI has successfully built. And very few companies have changed the trajectory of the future in quite the way that they have. I would say they're probably created one of the biggest inflection points in human history. So no matter what happens, nothing but respect for that incredible team over there. And I've gotten to know a few of them over the years. In fact, you know, there's folks that we're quite close to here at SecurityPal being, having been in San Francisco, there's uh, folks from there that are investors in SecurityPal as well. We've seen some of the early models we're following what they were doing from a very early stage, given the problem space that we're in. So just like, you know, have nothing but nice things to say, and I'm sure they'll figure out a way. Yeah, totally agree. And, and very well said. Something else I want to ask about, you've said that a few times here is this idea of like a 30-year plan or a 30-year vision or 40-year vision. Did you start the company thinking in that type of time horizon? Because I think most founders think in like five years or 10 years, 
I think VCs, if I understand right, they typically think in terms of like seven years. So when you came out, did you say from day one that you know there's like a 30-year plan or where did that come from? I have like deep belief that that's really like how long you should be like committed to something, right? And I just, one, I don't want to look for another job. <laughs> so there's a part of me that's just like, well, what am I going to do? I look for another job. And two, I think if you build your company the right way, I've really admired folks like the founders of like SAP, right? That have just like been at it for a long time, right? What a great company. It's been around since like the 70s. Nobody's heard of it, but it quietly produces and creates enterprise value, right? I'm a big fan of like, you know, ServiceNow, right? Another incredible company, Oracle. I think if you're trying to create that outsized enterprise value over the long run, you have to be committed for a long period of time. I also have this deep personal mission. I want to help bring Silicon Valley, having graduated from Stanford, uh, having the opportunities that I've had here, creating multiple venture-backed companies, having the opportunity to work with incredible investors, partners, you know, executives and teammates here. I want to bring that idea and those tactics and those practices and the capital and all the benefits that we have here. And I want to bring it to Nepal, right? I want to bring Silicon Valley in many ways. I'd love to help Nepal and Kathmandu brand itself as, uh, as Silicon Peaks, right? And so I think that is a deep motivation for me. And it's a deep, deep reservoir of motivation that like nobody's ever going to be able to take away, right? And I think motivation is a moat, <laughs> motivation, if you will, no pun intended. And I think like if you have that, if you've been given the gift that I've been given as an immigrant to this country with the tremendous amount of opportunity that I've been given, you know, I didn't speak any English when I first came here as a seven-year-old and now I'm able to run a, you know, $100 million company and beyond. It is so important for somebody like me to try to like do something with that. That really outlives me, right? And so I think technology has that ability. Like you can scale change with technology and technology companies in a way you just can't with many other things. And like, I'm really motivated by that. And I think having a 30, 40 year vision, why not? Nobody talks about that. Everybody's going after the quick local maxima wins. If I have the ability and the network and just the deep reservoir of motivation, why not? Why not take advantage of those cards that I've been dealt? It's amazing. Love that. On the topic of funding, as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 21 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I never wanted to raise money for Security Pal. I wanted to bootstrap it the whole time. We ended up hitting a million in ARR within a year, growing really quickly, getting a bunch of incredible customers. And I really felt like, you know, we had the right partners in craft to be able to do this. I think what I've learned is the only thing that matters is your customers. Nothing is more important than customers. What do I mean by that? If you want to raise more funding, focus more on your customers. If you want to hire the best talent, focus more on your customers. If you were to think about like all these three things, investors, talent, customers, there's only one of those out of those three things, like there's only one of them that automatically takes care of the other two, right? And that's customers. Focusing more on your investors is not going to get you more customers. And focusing more on your talent, while it might, it's not going to scale in the way that just focusing more on your customers will. Because ultimately, the best talent wants to work for companies that are growing, companies that have really great customers, right? And so focus on your customers, be relentless, do whatever you can, you know, to work with them, to always maintain the relationship with them, maintain the direct relationship with your customers. 
And your customers are your greatest point of leverage. Like I would say your customers are the thing that's going to make you look sexy AF to any investor or any person that you want to hire. <laughs> I love it. All right, man. Final question here, since we're almost up on time, let's do a, a short vision here or, or a short time horizon. So three years, what's the three-year vision look like? That three-year vision is we've established the category as customer assurance. We have an incredible suite of products. We have substantial number of customers in both APAC and, uh, and EMEA, as well as here in North America. And, uh, you know, we've just like continued to grow at an incredible pace. And everybody knows Security Pal as like the household uh, name for having created this customer assurance category and is leading it. That would be the three-year vision. Amazing. Love the vision. And I, I really love this conversation. I know it's going to be a hit with our audience. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, you can reach out to me via LinkedIn, uh, Pukar C. Hamal. There's a little C middle initial there. Otherwise, you'll find some other dude in my, with the same name as me. Uh, I'm based out of the San Francisco Bay Area, so you should know. Twitter, I'm at, at PC Hamal. So you can reach out to me on Twitter, DM me there. And then you can also like ping me over email. It's pukar.hamal at securitypalhq.com. So that's pukar.hamal at securitypalhq.com. And I'm sure they can also look at the show notes. Sound great. Pukar, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thank you so much, Brett. Really appreciate the opportunity to share my story with you as well as your incredible listeners. Awesome, man. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.